Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Chapter 6, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. This passage lands in the middle of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, and we've been looking for the past three Sundays at this paragraph in the middle of it, having to do with our heart toward our stuff, a relationship to this world and the material possessions that come along with it, and indeed the gifts that God has entrusted to us to then steward for his purposes and for his glory. So we'll conclude uh, this series today as we look at the longest chunk of the passage, verses 25 down through 34. That'll be what we'll focus on today. But just to run us up to that, we've seen in the three Sundays leading up to this, the verses that lead up to this passage, uh, that stewardship has to do with how we relate to our possessions. And so in verses 19 to 21, Jesus exhorted us not to hoard for ourselves treasures on earth, but to build up our heavenly bank account as it were, to store up treasures in heaven because they won't be destroyed and they can't be taken from us. Only what is eternal will last and our hearts will follow our stuff. So if our stuff is piled up here, our hearts will be bound to this earth and not to to the kingdom of God. We saw in verses 22 and 23 that stewardship is a matter of our perspective. How do you look at your life? How do you look at the world that we're living in now compared and contrasted with eternity. That's where we talked about the dot and the line, the dot of this earthly life. There's a start, there's an end. It's relatively short compared to that line. Actually, I should back up. Somebody, uh, somebody pointed out to me that truly the, the line in the, the graphic that I showed you is actually a ray because it has a starting point and then goes on into eternity. So if, if engineer or mathematicians out there, if you feel better talking about the dot and the ray, that, that's okay. All right, I'll, I'll allow that. But we talked about the, the, the perspective there. Uh, which, which kingdom are we living for? Which kingdom do you view as ultimate? Is this life, this earth, this kingdom the most important ultimate reality? Or is there an eternal life to come that's even more important and in some way even more real than what we experience now in this fallen world. And so the eye as the lamp of the body has to do with how you view the world. So stewardship is about our hearts toward our possessions. Stewardship is about our perspective on the world and eternity, which kingdom we view as most important. And last week in verse 24, we saw that stewardship is about authority. What authority will you serve? And Jesus gave us this dichotomy. You cannot serve God and money. You will be the faithful and diligent servant of one or the other. And so the follower of Jesus is tasked, is charged with submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ as the king of this new and heavenly and lasting kingdom. And so verse 25 begins with the word therefore. And I think all of what just came before it is in view. Therefore, meaning with treasures laid up in heaven, with eyes set on eternity, and with God as your master, right? With all of that in view, therefore, I tell you, and then on we go. So let's read verses 25 through 34. I'll read for you the whole passage, 
and then we'll, I'll give you the main idea of these verses, and then we'll walk through them together. Beginning in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. May God bless this word to us today. Here's the main idea of this passage in the language that we've been using. If you'll live for the line, God will take care of the dot. If you will live for the line, the ray, God will take care of the dot. There's a few things we learn about worry in these verses, and I think it's very pastoral. It's, it's very shepherding for Jesus on the heels of these strong exhortations about our heart toward our money and our possessions and about the way that we might be looking at the world all wrong and pursuing the wrong kingdom, running for the wrong end zone, and the way that we may actually be idolaters and serving a different master, it's very pastoral of him to come back not to a strong dropping the book kind of charge, but to a fatherly concern for our anxious hearts. Three times in this passage, he tells us, do not be anxious. It's the repeated instruction. In verse 25, he begins it, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. He says it again down in verse 31. Therefore do not be anxious, saying what shall we eat, etc. And then he concludes the passage again in verse 34, saying therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. So three times, Jesus tells us, don't be anxious. A few, couple of reasons for that. Number one, he knows we're prone to anxiety. He knows we're going to worry. If we don't have an exhortation, an evidence to the contrary, we will find good reasons to be really wrapped up with worry and anxiety about the dot, about what we're going to do, what we're going to wear, where we're going to go. He knows that. And so three times, don't be anxious. And he tells us this because... What he's interested in is our heart toward him and our relationship with him. 
if he's just interested in our conformity, if he's just interested in getting sort of a feigned kind of outward obedience from us, he wouldn't take this relational approach. He wouldn't take this calming approach. He tells us not to worry because he cares about us. And he knows that to the extent that we are worried about what's going on in our dot, we will not be thinking about or focused on what is going on in our line. And we need to remember that he's just told us in verse 24 that we can't serve God and money. We can't have two masters. And so with God as our master and Jesus as the, as the one with all, <coughs> excuse me, as the one with all authority, I'm going to get a drink. <clears throat> With Jesus as the one with all authority and our master, it's worth considering do not be anxious as a command from the Lord. That's an imperative. Do not be anxious. And so the simple truth is that worry reveals unbelief. It's the first thing I think we learn about worry in these verses. Worry reveals unbelief. Our anxiety about our lives exposes a lack of confidence in God to take care of us. We either doubt his providence, that is, we don't really think he's able to work it out such that our needs will be met, or we doubt his promises. We just really are not sure that God's going to be true to his word. Maybe he's not going to hold up his end of the bargain, so to speak. And when we worry when we are wrapped up in anxiety about what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, where we're going to live, where we're going to sleep, what's our job, where we're going to drive, all those things, the, 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 the dot stuff, when we're worried about that, we are revealing a heart that is not resting in faith, that is not trusting in God. Have you ever heard yourself say something like, I'm just a natural worrier, or described yourself as a control freak? What, what are you really saying about yourself, about your heart, about what you believe about God and his relationship to you? This is what Jesus means in verse 30, where he says, oh, you of little faith. I don't think he's attacking. He's not just dogging us. He's exposing a basic mistrust of God that resides in our hearts when we find ourselves preoccupied with the details of our earthly lives. To worry is not to trust God. Well, what, what are we not supposed to be anxious about? He gives us some things. Pretty much everything. At least the basics that you could extrapolate out from there. He says, don't be worried about your life. Probably all the details about your life. Don't be worried about food and drink. What will you eat? What will you drink? Don't be worried about your body, your clothing, what you wear. We find all kinds of ways to worry about these things, don't we? He reminds us life is about bigger, deeper, more important things than food and clothing. Right? Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? There's something more than just a, a functional, physical thing going on. There's, there's, there's deeper realities to life and the kingdom of God and our relationship to him that we miss 
when we're anxiously worrying about food and drink and body and clothing. Now, most of us probably aren't in immediate danger of starving or freezing. So our worrying about food and clothing tends to take some different forms. We're not necessarily all the time worried, I'm not going to have any food to eat. Or I'm not going to have any clothing that I can put on my body. We're probably not really worried at that level. But we find, we find other ways to worry about them anyway. When it comes to food and drink, maybe it's not so much for a lack. It's just for the crippling amount of options that are available to us. There is so much out there. We've got we to make decisions about food that's calorie-free or sugar-free or gluten-free or hormone-free or whatever. Will my kids eat it? Right? There's all kinds of stuff that we come up with to worry about when it comes to food, even beyond the basic question of, will I have enough food to stay alive? Will my neighbor judge me about what I eat? If I go through the drive through at Taco Bell and feed my kids, am I going to be getting sideways glances from people at church going, oh man, feeding your kids that junky food, right? We have all kinds of ways to worry about food. Our bodies, how do we look? How do we feel? How do others perceive us? Am I fit? Am I unhealthy? Am I athletic enough? Will I recover from this disease? There's all manner of things that we worry about when it comes to our bodies. Clothing, again, probably not for a lack of the basic just covering of your body, but all kinds of options that can cripple us. We think about their, the style of clothing that we wear. The, the price of the clothing. Are people going to judge me because my clothes are too cheap or too pricey? Are they, is what I'm wearing appropriate? Does it fit the occasion? Is it distracting to people around me? Sometimes we manage to worry about our body and our clothing together, like, does this shirt hide my belly, right? There's so much to worry about when it comes to food and drink and the body and clothing, right? I'm probably not the only one who struggles with any of those things on that list. There's all manner of ways that we come up with to worry about all of these things. Maybe you've heard the story of the man who was prone to worry and stress and, and you know, anxiety about the details of his life and his future. And he went to lunch one day with a friend, and his friend said, wow, you seem like a different person. You're like very calm, very relaxed. Like, what, 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 did you, what have you done? Like, well, what's the secret? And he said, oh, it's great, man. I, I hired somebody to do all my worrying for me. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, I, I, I just found a guy, and I told him I'd pay him $100,000 a year to do all my worrying. And so I'm not worried about anything. I just, when, when a thought comes to my mind, I send him a text or an email, and, and he gets to worry about that now. So I'm just like living peaceful and free. And he goes, wow, that's amazing. $100,000, how are you going to pay him? He said, that's for him to worry about. <laughs> Sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? Somebody that we can unload all our cares onto who will ease our burdens, give us peace of mind, handle all our anxiety. You know, come to think of it, it's not all that unlike what we do have in the Lord Jesus. 
1 Peter 5, 7 tells us, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. His heart for you is love and warmth and affection, and he wants good for you. So he invites you to bring the anxieties, bring the worries. You don't need to check them at the door. You don't need to pretend they're not there. It's not holier somehow to act like you're not worried about things. He wants you to bring those anxieties to him. What are you afraid of? I gave you some possibilities, but what are the things that you worry about? What keeps you up at night? Confess it to the Lord. Confess it to a brother or sister in Christ. Sometimes naming your worry as unbelief might be the first step toward growing through it and learning to navigate it with faith. Life is more than this, right? It's about more than the details of our clothing and our food and our dwellings and our belongings. Don't be so busy with worry and anxiety that you can't be bothered with the things of the kingdom of God. That's how I think this ties in. So worry reveals unbelief. It reveals a heart that's not resting in God's good care. The second thing we learn is that worry is unnecessary. It's unnecessary. Jesus is kind to give us some examples. He tells us some things to look at and to consider. If you're worried that God's not going to take care of you, let me point you to a couple of examples of how God takes care of his creatures. He doesn't just give a flat command, don't be anxious. He gives us evidence of his trustworthiness to reinforce it. Don't be anxious. Why? Because you don't have to be. You don't, you don't have to be. On the topic of food and drink, he points us to the birds of the air. Look again at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, which is kind of a funny image. Imagine birds like stockpiling grain or whatever, like in a little barn. They don't, they don't do that. And yet your heavenly father feeds them one day at a time. They don't store up their food. They just have enough food for that day. Like the children of Israel in the wilderness, when God provided only enough manna for the day. When they tried to get smart and hoard it, oh, I'll just put tuck some aside, so I'll have extra for tomorrow, it rotted overnight. So when they woke up the next morning and they went, oh, let's go check out my pile of manna, it was gross, right? It was not edible anymore because God's like, no. You're not going to stockpile for yourself. You're going to learn to trust that I will take care of you one day at a time. And the same is true of the birds of the field, or excuse me, the birds of the air. He takes care of the birds, and then he says, how much more will he take care of you? What a precious promise. Your father's care for you is personal and deep. You are his child. And if he takes care of birds, rest assured, he'll take care of you. Worry is unnecessary. It doesn't do you any good to worry. When it comes to the body and, and clothing, he points us to flowers in verse 28. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory, the whole glorious kingdom of Solomon, which is probably the United Nation of Israel at its peak of power and prestige and the temple that Solomon built for the Lord at the peak of its glory they got nothing on the flowers of the field have you taken a look at them and they don't work they neither toil nor spin the birds are working like they're gathering food and 
feeding their babies and stuff, but they're not worrying about it. The flowers aren't working or worrying, right? They, they just are there. And God just clothes them with beauty beyond imagination. And so yet again, he argues from the lesser to the greater. If God clothes flowers like this, whose lifespan is short, he says, who are here today and then tomorrow they're tossed into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? Your lifespan is not short, remember? You've got an eternity ahead of you. Your life doesn't end at the dot. You've got, a, you've got a line coming. And if he takes care of the flowers who are alive for just today, how much more will he take care of you and give you all that you need? Flowers don't work or worry. Birds work, but they don't worry. People somehow manage to both work and to worry. We're the only ones among God's creatures who have the audacity to look our creator in the face and say, I'm just not sure you're really going to come through. So I'm going to work a little harder just to make sure I'm going to be all right. Look to the birds. Look to the flowers. No need to worry. So when it comes to the topic of our possessions, and we've been talking, of course, about giving. If you're not as free with your giving, you're not as generous as you'd like to be. If you feel burdened down with financial concerns, could it be that you're not trusting your father to take care of you? I'd really like to give more to the church, or I'd really like to be involved in more things around my community or taking care of needy around town, but I'm just not sure that I'm going to have what I need to get groceries or to have the sort of basics for my own home and family. Is that what keeps you back from sacrificial giving? I'd like to be involved in, you know, a small group or to be inviting unbelievers to, uh, invite an unbeliever to read the Bible with me and maybe have an evangelistic conversation. But, man, that would really mess up my mornings, you know. How would I stay fit enough if I had to kind of cut into my gym routine in order to spend more time with other people, Right? Because everything affects something else. Everything, the dominoes fall somewhere. So maybe you're worried about those details and you think, if I were to give more of my time or my financial resources or use my talents for his kingdom more, that's going to cut into something else and then I start to get nervous. Give it to the Lord. He knows. I love this, verse 32, he says, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. So the Gentiles, of course, in this context would have been not just non-Jewish people, but pagans. I mean, really idol worshipers that lived around them. And pagan idol worshipers are searching after all that stuff. And in fact, if anybody's got a reason maybe to feel anxious about what they're going to eat and what they're going to wear and are they going to have enough, maybe it's somebody whose God is a block of wood because that God's probably not going to take care of them. But he says, listen, the pagans run after all that stuff, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Your Father knows how much comfort and freedom is there in that simple fact. Your father 
knows. All the things you're worried about, all the things you're not sure you're going to have, your Father knows. The child of God has no need for such concern because the one who knows your need is your Father who loves you and cares for you. Worry is unnecessary because God takes care of his creatures and if he takes care of his creatures, how much more will he take care of his children? Third thing we learn about worry, worry is counterproductive. Worry is counterproductive. It's not only unnecessary, it actually works against us. If you look back at verse 27, we're speaking of the birds, you know, um, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Verse 27, he says, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you worry about what you're going to eat, is it going to help you live longer? Of course not. And in fact, there's, there's some interesting uh, linguistic things going on here. The, 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 the word span in, our, in the ESV translates the, uh, the Greek uh, unit of measurement, which equals about 18 inches. And then the word that translated life is another measurement, which can either measure time or age. So... An alternate translation of this, of this phrase about who by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life. An alternate translation is, can anyone make himself 18 inches taller by worrying about his height? It's absurd, right? It's ridiculous to even think about. Of course, I could spend all my time worried about how tall I am, but it's not going to make me any taller. I can worry about how long my life might be, but it's not going to make my life any longer. And it's not only useless, like you don't help yourself, we actually know the opposite is true. Medical research has indicated time and again that stress and anxiety actually shorten a person's life, either by physiological factors like the increase in cortisol in a person's blood when he's feeling anxious, or from harmful behaviors that anxious people often turn to to try to cope with their stress. So anxiety and stress and worry actually shorten your life as opposed to lengthening it. So it's not only unnecessary and useless, it is counterproductive. It works against you. It actually harms you to worry. And it drives you farther away from the heart of God who loves you and cares for you. Jesus is basically saying, even if you worry and stress out about your life and try to frantically manage and control every detail, you won't be any better off. You can't improve upon your Father's loving providential care for you, so don't try. <laughs> Dan Duriani says, worry, though it comes so natural to us, is absurd. It really is. Well, there's a condition here, isn't there? There's a catch, if you will. The promise of provision and care is not for everyone without exception. Who's it for? Look at verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things 
will be added to you. Who's the promise for? The person who lives and gives in such a way that the kingdom of God is his first and defining priority. In other words, God takes care of the kingdom first giver. Or, if you live for the line, God will take care of the dot. That's the hinge here. If you'll seek him first, if you'll seek his kingdom first, if you'll seek his righteousness first, he'll take care of the rest, the stuff that you spend all of your time worrying about. He'll take care of that stuff. You focus on his kingdom and his righteousness. So what are we to seek? Two things. Seek first the kingdom of God, number one. This is not a place, at least not yet. It's a dominion. When the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God, it's speaking about the authority of God in the hearts of his people. And so when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, and he is himself going to be inaugurated as its king, the one with all authority, then it is the authority of Jesus Christ in the hearts of his people. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, what we're saying is it's the realm, the spiritual realm for now, where Jesus rules over his people. The kingdom expands as his authority is recognized by more people and submitted to more fully by those who follow him. Now, the eternal kingdom of God will be the final situation of the universe where the spiritual realm will become a physical realm and indeed the physical realm where Christ rules without opponent and his people joyfully submit to his authority and enjoy his glorious presence in a new heaven and a new earth forever. That day is coming. But in the meantime, the kingdom of God is this spiritual reality where Christ rules over his people by his word. And so to seek first the kingdom of God means this is what we want more than anything else. To seek first the kingdom of God means we want Christ's authority to spread and his glory to be seen and cherished. And yes, indeed, we want our lives to be spent for that purpose. It is looking at all of our life and resources through the lens of Christ and his kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. And number two, his righteousness. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And I think he could mean at least two things by this. One, he could just be speaking of the righteous character of God himself. Seeking, indeed, the honor of his name. And I think that would be appropriate. That would be right. It could also mean, he could also have in mind our own growth in righteous character. He could have in mind God's purpose in each of our lives, as Romans 8, 29 says, to be conformed to the image of his son. And so we prioritize God's glory as reflected in lives of holiness and love. And so I think he could have both of those nuances in mind when he speaks of seeking the righteousness of God. Both seeking his honor to uphold his righteous reputation and seeking to grow in holiness in your own life so that your life better reflects him 
and his righteousness. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, the call not to worry is not a call to laziness and presumption. Well, I guess I can just lay about and God will zap me with everything that I need. It's a call to work, to work for the kingdom, but to work confidently, knowing that your every need will be supplied by the God whose kingdom you are working to advance. I'm sure that this room is filled with people who could tell story after story of how God has come through in moments where it didn't make any sense, where the math didn't add up, right? I don't know how, it didn't make any sense on paper, but God gave us everything we needed. I'm sure this room is filled with stories like that. Maybe those would be good stories to share around your Thanksgiving table this week and giving thanks to God for his faithfulness and his provision. But that's the reality. When you spend yourself for the kingdom of God, you'll find that the things you used to worry so much about, food, clothes, housing, jobs, will be taken care of. Well, what does kingdom first giving look like? All right, so trying to bring this to a, a conclusion, what, uh, what, what does it look like to put the kingdom of God first in your stewardship? Well, it will involve a few categories of your life. For, at least it will involve spending, right? Your money. It will mean that kingdom causes get first dibs, not leftovers. Whether that's giving to the church directly, or that's supporting a missionary or missions work around the world, or that's direct benevolence work, like you're giving to somebody in need in your community or in your life in the name of Christ. There's all kinds of ways that you can put your money to work for the kingdom. It's not just writing a check to the church. There's all kinds of ways that we can do that. But kingdom causes get first dibs, not leftovers, not let me put everything in my budget that I really want to have, and then with whatever you know, few cents are left, I'll consider what kind of charitable giving to do. Seeking first the kingdom of God means at least considering kingdom causes before other stuff, including food, clothing, basics. Now, how much should you give? I know that's a question that's always on people's minds when you do a stewardship series. I'm not going to tell you how much to give. Uh, I, I think it's beyond the scope of, of this series and of conversations to even address questions like, are Christians required to tithe? I think that's a longer conversation than we can have right here. God calls us, I think, to give according to our means, but sacrificially. We're not, he's not calling us to be fools, to just be idiots with our money. And be like, I'm giving 100% of my paycheck to the church and he'll just have to feed me in some other way. I mean, if the Lord leads you to do that, then all right, cool. Um, I'd like to hear how that goes. But we, he gives us limits. He gives us capacities, right? And so he calls us to use our minds and to seek wisdom and to make good choices. So give according to your means, but sacrificially. So it should feel like a stretch, I think, 
Your kingdom giving should feel like a stretch. And when it comes to the question of the tithe, whether, whether or not you think the tithe is required for all Christians or it was an Old Testament law that hasn't necessarily been repeated in the same way to New Testament Christians, I think a tithe is at least a good starting point for the conversation. If you're like, I want to give, but I don't know how much to give, start with 10% and go from there. And I think if you end up having to shave a little bit back from that, or you end up deciding, you know what, 10% is actually not enough. I'm actually fine with what, what, what I got over here. I can increase that. I think you can go in either direction and give in a faithful way, a God-honoring way. Give according to your means, but give sacrificially. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9 that God loves a cheerful giver. And part of what that means is that we don't give under compulsion, like this, this sense of blind duty. It is my obligation to give this certain amount, and therefore I will dutifully give that certain amount. That kind of giving doesn't necessarily please God. And in fact, we've seen in other places in the New Testament that Jesus isn't that impressed with amounts. You might remember the story where the Pharisees are giving this huge amounts of money very publicly and very obviously. Look how much money I'm pouring into the coffers of the church. And then this little widow comes in, and she has like a penny. And she gives a penny, but it's all that she's got. Who's Jesus impressed with? He doesn't care about the big numbers of the Pharisees. He cares about the heart of the giver. And so when that woman gives all that she has, and it's a tiny amount, that's what honors him. So at some level, how much money should I give is the wrong question to ask. The better question is, where is my heart? How much of a hold does my money have on my heart? How much can I give to help separate the hold, the pull of money on my heart? That might be a better way to approach it. So kingdom first giving will look like in your money, that you're giving to kingdom causes first and not giving them the leftovers. Number two, it'll affect your schedule. It'll affect your time. That's another key resource that God has entrusted to us, and it's limited. It's finite. Kingdom causes will claim more of my time and attention than lesser personal pursuits. Fitness, entertainment, recreation, whatever else. I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm not saying your schedule can't have those things on it. But if you were to glance at your calendar and take a little bit of inventory, how much time are you spending on time in the gym or soccer trips or money on your streaming entertainment packages or whatever versus how much time you are spending. I just confused categories and talked about money. I meant how much time I'm actually watching or taking in entertainment versus how much time am I spending investing in kingdom causes, serving other people, working in the church, whatever, whatever it is. It'll affect your relationships. Gospel opportunities will become a priority in conversations if you're seeking the kingdom of God first. Whether that's with a stranger, somebody you suspect is an unbeliever, and turning a conversation towards spiritual matters to ask them about the Lord and whether they have a relationship with him to point them toward Christ. Also with believers, when you're talking with somebody from church, talking about spiritual things will become more important to you. 
if what is most important is the kingdom of God, and that's what you're seeking first, conversations around the table at lunch with your family or with fellow Christians will turn towards spiritual things and how we're following Jesus. There's just a few implications, I'm sure, that between your mind and wisdom and the Holy Spirit in you, you can come up with a whole bunch more of what kingdom first giving would look like for you. But just take a step. Identify an area or areas uh, in need of reform in your life and get to work. Make a plan. Start taking steps. Well, the conclusion here to this whole passage is the gift of daily grace. Daily grace. Look at verse 34. Therefore, and he gives it to us this third time, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I like how the New Living Translation renders this verse. It says, so don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. You know how this works. You start thinking about a situation in your life, and you envision several possible outcomes, and then you try to plan a response to, to those situations and those outcomes, and then you imagine that going badly and on and on, and so now you're doing damage control for catastrophes that haven't even happened yet and may never happen because you've worked yourself into this cycle, this loop of anxiety and worry. Listen, today is hard enough. Anybody agree with that? Today is hard enough. Don't borrow tomorrow's troubles. Don't try to solve next week's problems. One day at a time, sweet Jesus, is what the song, the old song calls us to. The prayer that the Lord gave us in this sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, just a few verses prior, you know it well. It goes like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then what does it say? Give us this day our daily bread. Not make sure we have enough for this month. Not make sure I have a nice retirement. Give us this day our daily bread. Here is what the Lord is trying to cultivate in your heart. Daily trust for daily grace. You don't have to have faith for tomorrow. You don't have to have faith for next month, next year. You just have to have faith for today. And God will give you grace for today's troubles. And that's all he'll give you. And we've got to be satisfied with that. The heart that's at peace is not the heart that knows all the details about tomorrow and has the future all figured out. The heart that's at peace is the one that knows it's God that focuses on its mission and entrusts the future into his hands. That is a peaceful heart. Sometimes we think we'd be less anxious if we just knew the answer, or if we just knew how this situation would turn out, or if we just knew what would come next around the corner. Sometimes we think, I'd feel better if I just knew, fill in the blank. But that's a piece that's based on understanding. You remember Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7? What does it promise us? 
It says, do not be anxious, but by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace that what? That surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace that passes understanding. I don't think that just means peace that's so deep it's hard to describe. I think it means it's a peace that comes from a deeper place than knowing what comes next. It's a peace that comes from, I don't have to have all the answers because I know the heart of my Father, and he's with me, and he's for me, and he's going to take care of me. That's the peace that passes understanding. That's the kind of peaceful heart that Jesus wants us to have, to cultivate. And it comes by entrusting ourselves to him. Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23 famously say, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know why the Lord's mercies are new every morning? Because every morning brings its own set of needs and concerns, and God provides just enough wisdom, patience, mercy, and strength to get through today. Spend your energy on the kingdom and leave your daily needs to your Father's attentive care. If you'll live for the line, God will take care of the dot. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your loving heart to us. We thank you for the precious promises that we find in your word. We pray that you'd give us faith to believe, to take you at your word, to know that you are both able to work all things for our good and you are inclined to provide us all that we need. Teach us to cultivate peaceful hearts, to pursue a peace that's not based on our awareness or our knowledge or understanding of a situation, but a peace that's rooted in our trust in you, our confidence that you will take care of us. Father, if there's anyone in the room today who has not come to know you as their father, we pray that you would draw their hearts to you even now. Lead them toward repentance, confession of their own sin and their need for your grace. Let Jesus fill their view as the sacrifice for sin that was sufficient to cover all of their guilt and grant them faith to believe to rest themselves upon you so they might come to find the love and care of a heavenly father and for each of us Lord we ask that you would teach us to count our days to view our lives in the context of eternity to steward the resources you've entrusted to us of life, of time, of relationship, of money and possessions, to steward them for your glory, for the advance of your kingdom, and to leave the rest to you. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.